From the Clark Ford Studio in Oxford, Mississippi, MVW Digital proudly presents the Oxford Exxon Podcast. I'd say thanks for tuning in, but why am I going to give you a round of applause for something you're supposed to do, to be frank? And now, here are your hosts, Chase Parm. And broadcast school has really paid off. And Neil McCready. I deserve to be on TV. This edition of the Oxford Exxon Podcast, Chase Farm and Neil McCready. A couple guests for you today comprising the show. First, we're going to talk to Dr. Michael Cunningham. You know, it was Dr. Mike on the board, made uh, his COVID updates every uh, every single day. Second time he's been on the podcast, so he'll give you his opinions, his thoughts from his research about where things stand with COVID-19 as of right now, uh, locally and, uh, and nationwide as well. Also down the show, Ole Miss soccer coach Matt Mott um, joins Neil for a, a pretty lengthy interview also. So a couple different perspectives. Sorry, I can't talk this morning. There for you between uh, Michael Cunningham and Matt Mott on today's show, a show that's brought to you every single day by the Oxford Exxon Highway 6 West in Oxford. Use the Speed Pass Plus app. You don't have to touch much. You can take care of yourself. You can be as safe as possible when you're getting fuel there with all Blue Sky locations, including the Oxford Exxon, or go next door to the Oxford Crystal. Use the drive-thru for your food needs there at Oxford Crystal. And also coming to you from the Clark Ford Studio, 662-257-1900, Highway 25 South there in Amory. And you can uh, you can take care of of all your car buying needs, Corey wants to be your truck guy, wants to be your car guy, and he will take care of you. Even in this time of social distancing, he will make it work. So again, 662-257-1900 is the phone number, and we will kick things off with Dr. Michael Cunningham on the Rafters Music and Food Hotline. Uh, Dr. Michael Cunningham joins us uh, here on the podcast. Uh, first of all, Dr. Mike, thanks so much for uh, for spending some time. I know that uh, you, you were ready to go earlier in the week. My router was not ready to go earlier in the week that happens so i appreciate your flexibility and uh i always do this because i have discovered dr mike that uh with this thing that sometimes the news changes a little from day to day as you are well aware so we are taping this at uh 1 2 p.m central daylight time on saturday may the 2nd so thanks for being here yeah thanks for having me Neil. all right we'll start here um I'll start with the same place I started last time. Sort of, where is the virus today? I know you've been you've been doing these updates uh, every night. I wake up and see them in the morning, so in my mind they're morning updates. But I think they're I think they're actually done at night. They're very uh, informational. There's a lot there. Uh, I saw the one from this morning, Saturday morning. Uh, kind of in your mind, sort of, where are we with uh, COVID nineteen right now? Yeah, I think uh, for most of you know, the country it's, we're on the back end of it. And, and again, it's hard to see that with, with, with the death tolls every day. Cause that's the number everybody looks at. Uh, but if you really get into the data um, and, and, and look at it, uh, you know, deaths peaked probably early to mid April. Um, <clears throat> if you look at true date of death and not just the numbers that are reported every day. So um, I think we're on the backside of this, uh, and eventually, um, as May goes along, uh, it's going to be a lot better month than April, um, as far as, as that goes. Um, and so I think at this point, it's all about, um, you know, what's, what's the next step? Uh, where do we go from here? 
Um, so I kind of think that's where we are with the virus. I think um, it, it, its its numbers are fading fast. I mean, it, we're testing so much now, it's hard to see that because the test numbers are kind of hanging out in the same general range every day. But we're testing so much more, it's hard to see that. Uh, and, with percent, and, and with the yeah, test, right. right, with the test, even if you, quote, test positive, and, I, and again, I want to say what I said last time, I, I don't want to minimize uh, the people who have who have lost loved ones, uh, the, the loss of life, uh, death is tragic. It's it's always all those things, I, and, I, and I mean those things genuinely. But you can test positively for this, and it be it it, it could be like a remnant of it that you had, where you, it turns out you had the virus a month ago or two months ago, right? Right, right. That's that's right. Because there was this concern about these reinfections. I think it was in South Korea. Uh, but they went in and did an investigation of that and basically found that, you know, they're just detecting remnant viral particles inside of mucous epithelial cells in the, in the, in the throat or in the nose. Uh, and it wasn't a true reinfection at all. And again, all those patients, like 285 of them were asymptomatic. They didn't have any symptoms. It's just remnant viral particles. The, the PCR is so sensitive. Uh, the, the test that's the technology that's done to, to pick those, uh, the, the, the RNA of the virus up is so sensitive that, it's picking up particles uh, that are not infectious at all. And so the fact that we're able to do more testing right now, which is a good thing, obviously, that is a very, very good thing. The fact that we can do more testing, that testing is, is more readily available, uh, obviously that's going to produce more positives, but that doesn't necessarily mean, and feel free to say, no, no, Neil, you're an idiot. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to educate myself on this as I go, and I'm a sports writer, not a, not a medical person. But it seems to me that that would tell you that there's a possibility that what we've done is that we've built up more um, herd immunity than maybe we think we have at this point. Yeah, I think we probably have more immunity than we than we believe. I think this uh, than we've seen. I think the serology testing. And I, I listened to uh, Alan the other day, his podcast, and he kind of he wasn't too confident in the serology testing. But I think my point to Alan would be uh, that when the serology testing is telling you the same thing everywhere it's done, it's probably pretty good. Yeah. Um, and so, and also just the distribution of the serology testing across the state of New York tells you that theirs is pretty valid uh, with, with the highest areas being the hardest hit areas like New York city. Um, and then even beyond that, when you go into Queens and, and, and um, I think the Bronx is the two hardest hit areas of the city. Uh, it's even higher there, you know. And so I think that that tells you a lot about the serology testing. So when you look at serology and you look at all of the positive tests we're having, I, I do think that that's in the long run a good thing uh, because we do want herd immunity. And and now what is the number for herd immunity? Nobody really knows. I was going to ask um, you that question. What what, what do you what do you which kind of your so medical some, some people think some people think it's sixty to seventy percent, but I mean, again, that's just some random number based on you know vir some viral infections in the past. Uh, obviously, nobody knows for this one because it's new. Uh, but when you see serology testing kind of starting to max out in that thirty percent range, Iran just did a huge serology uh, testing, and they've got they got uh, anywhere from twenty two to I think 30, 30, 31 or thirty three percent. When you see it start to max out in that in that range, it makes you it just makes you kind of sit back and look, well, is this what's required uh, to get herd immunity? Because um, the other point to that is that if you look at the timelines, you know, all the lockdowns occurred about a week 
after peak infection, which is why the lockdowns didn't really work. Uh, I mean, social distancing is one thing, but lockdowns are another. And so um, if you look at the data and what's called an epicurve, an epicurve just basically corrects the date of onset of illness um, instead of using when the patient was swabbed or when they got admitted to the hospital, you go back and correct all that for actually when they started to feel sick. And if you look at those curves, you see that the, the onset of illness was well before lockdown. The peak onset of illness was well before lockdown. And so um, I think if you take all that data together, in New York, the disease probably just ran its course there. Um, because they were a week too late. They were a week beyond uh, date of illness onset. Uh, and so I think um, you, it makes you wonder if that 30% number they're getting close to, I think the last numbers were 25% in the city. Um, are they close to herd immunity and do they have it? Because, um, again, everything they did was just kind of too late there. Um, and I think the virus just kind of ran its course. Um, and if you look at all the curves everywhere where the virus has really hit hard, it just kind of runs the same course. Um, and so it really makes you wonder, did what we, what we did, did it make a difference or is this just the virus doing its thing and going through and taking out the vulnerable and then it's done? Um, so I think there's two ways you can look at that data beyond, oh, you know, the lockdowns worked or the social distancing worked. And um, it's I think it's a little more complicated than that. I know this sounds like an elementary question, but I'm genuinely curious to sort of get your thoughts on it. Why has it ravaged nursing homes and long term care facilities the way that it obviously has? Yeah, I just think that that's well. Uh, let's let's start with one basic fact. I think most physicians will know, and I think anybody who's ever had a, a loved one in a nursing home will know, is that the average lifespan of somebody in a nursing home, I think, is about it's either five or six months. It's really brief. Yeah. Um, and so, which means that they're really sick. You know, they have a lot of medical problems, cardiovascular disease. Many of them have had strokes. Um, and we know, looking at all the data, the worst risk factor to have is cardiovascular disease. Um, sure. It's, it's a present, in, I think, close to 60% of deaths. Uh, and so I think that that really explains the nursing home issue. Um, those patients are just the most susceptible uh, to the virus. Um, and if you look across the entire world, uh, I think 45 to 50 percent of deaths have been in nursing homes. And, and, yeah, and I think that's number. readily yeah. explained. I think it's readily explained by just what's wrong with those patients that are there and why are they there in the first place. Okay, so let's get to some stuff that I'm curious about. At some point, you know, it's my podcast, and I'm entertaining myself, and I'm talking to somebody who knows a lot of stuff, and and so I'm I'm, I'm I want to get information for me. I hope that's okay with people. The good news is that a lot of you are listening; that you're in the same boat as me. So I've got three kids. I've got a 13 year old. You've got a 13 year old. Is there any doubt at all in your mind, Mike, that your daughter is going to go back to the eighth grade in August, and that my son is going to go back to the eighth grade in August? I, I, now, if I was running it, <laughs> if I was running the system, there would be no doubt. Uh, and I, but I don't know. I think the answer to your question depends on fear factor um, and and psychological issues. Um, so, but young I, people, I, I, your thirteen year old daughter. Let's say, and I don't want her to get it, obviously. Although I don't think it would matter if she did. But let's say that she gets it. She gets she gets coronavirus. There's. And, and again, feel free to tell me this is this is you're in the safe zone to go. No, Neil, you're an idiot. I've heard worse today. Um, she's not bringing it. There's no there's no evidence that young people are passing this along to older people, parents, grandparents, the way that 
we had originally feared. And 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 I don't I don't hold it against us at the beginning that that's what we thought because hey, we didn't know, and the unknown is scary. I mean, I think we all agree with that. The unknown is scary, and and the the thought of hey, young people could get this in droves and pass it around to, to parents and grandparents and just wipe out generations. I I get it. But it's, that doesn't appear to be how it works. The more that we learn about the virus, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, if I mean, if you look at studies from I think Switzerland and uh, several other places, uh, child transmission is a rare event uh, to an adult. It's actually the exact opposite. The adults give it to the kids, um, and so I think for middle school and under, there's no question that schools should be open. Uh, I, I think that I think they should be open now. Uh, you know, obviously, the older you get, the more likely you are to be able to to, to get the virus and and shed it and transmit it to someone else. So, um, <clears throat> you know, whether high school should be open is another question. But um, I, I personally, I don't think there's any doubt that schools should be open in the fall. Um, whether they'll be open uh, obviously depends on a lot of factors. Um, but yes, m- most studies. I think the most uh, in the studies they've seen was. Um, uh, they did one contact tracing. I think it was in in France, looking for child transmission to others. And what they found was the child was actually asymptomatically spreading influenza to everybody, and not the uh, <laughs> not COVID nineteen. Um, and so that was kind of humorous to see. But uh, but yeah, it, it, between France and Switzerland and several of the other studies, there's just not a lot of transmission from kids to adults. And then also there was a Taiwan study that just was released recently that uh, on contact tracing and. Um, and this kind of gets back to this whole, you know, how many people are going to get infected at a sporting event or whatever. Yeah, we're going to get basically, there, yeah. yeah, they basically found that out of about 2,000 or so people um, that they followed, uh, they infected 27 people. Um, and so that's a, um, that's a really low number and was kind of surprising to me, um, uh, given what we know about the virus uh, from other experiences. Okay, so you touched on middle school and down. You, you you mentioned high school. You said if it were up to you, you'd, you'd open them. I, I completely agree. I, um, obviously, the, the response from the – you can tell where I've shifted on this, it, just even in the time that you and I have talked from once to twice. I, I've shifted even further in a, in a direction. I, I know the concern is, okay, well, okay, Neil, the, the 16-year-old kids are fine. The 17-year-old kids are fine, but what about the teachers? What about the custodians? What about the cafeteria workers? What about, what about, what about? What do we do about them? What's, what is the answer to that? Because to me, the answer to that is, well, I, I think there are safeguards that can be taken, number one. And then number two, obviously, if, if, uh, if, if those people are at such an elevated level of risk that they just don't want to go to work, well, then they don't, you, and you have to replace them. Yeah, I think that's part of it. But also people like custodians and, and, and things like that, they're not really, uh, you know, their job isn't really causing them to be in a room and talking with a lot of people for a long time, which is kind of, you know, the best way to get this. Right. Uh, you know, prolonged exposure indoors in areas where people are singing, talking, you know, shouting, screaming. That's really, you know, the most common mode of transmission, um, at least from a mass spread perspective. Uh, and so um, – and then the, the most common would be just intrafamilial at home. Um, so I think the, some of the risks at school are a little bit overblown. I, I think my opinion on that has actually even changed since the last time we talked. Um, and, you know, if you've got professors that are older and have issues, you know, why can't they be on the video screen in the classroom instead right. of all the kids be at home? 
Well, that's uh, what I'm wondering. Watching a video screen. Yeah, at the college level, right? Where you could you could have, I mean, let's pick a school. I mean, any school, University of Tennessee. You have a, a professor of history at at uh, at UT Knoxville, and he or she is uh, in, in in his or her early sixties, overweight, maybe diabetic. I'm not judging. It's, it's okay. I mean, stuff happens, right? But he, he, the great professor, but is does not really need to be in an enclosed room with. 200 kids right couldn't that yeah. professor be on, on a you know through zoom or whatnot i mean one of the great things one of the great things that has come from this is that we have perfected some technologies um you know he could be on a on a zoom screen and you could have uh graduate assistants that are there in graduate school getting a, a, a master's degree in history or, or whatnot uh there at, at ut knoxville they could they could be uh What's the word I'm looking for? Proctors, I guess, uh, for the class. I mean, passing out stuff and and uh, meeting, you know, doing doing meetings with the students, and then the the professor could still have office hours where he or she had you know one on ones, and he could he or she could say, "Hey, look, I'm to do this. I'm going to wear a mask. I'm asking you as a student to wear a mask." And I don't think that's that that's a huge request, you know. If 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 he or she is worried that that he or she is uh, jeopardized or whatnot, I mean, I, I guess my point is, I think there's ways to accommodate. The, the minority that are at risk and, and allow the majority that is frankly not at risk to go ahead and, and, and have a normal, in this case, college experience. Yeah, I, I think that there are other ways to deal with it than, you know, having everybody stay at home and use video screens. I mean, the students need interaction with each other. And I think you can get that if you have them in a classroom, like you said, with GAs or whoever. And just the, you know, the, the person at risk is the one that's on the screen. Yeah. Uh, not the people who are at practically zero risk and actually from an influenza perspective if we're going to do one comparison this thing does not kill near the number of young people as influenza does uh and so the young people are way lower risk uh from this versus an influenza death and so um I think it, that makes much more sense uh, going forward from a uh, college perspective. Um, and then if you've got, you know, everybody's young and healthy and reasonable in class, uh, then they can all be there. You know, I, you just, you have to use a, a scalpel to kind of tailor your uh, um, uh, methods um, as far as how we're going to do things. And that's just assuming it's still around then. Yeah. And that's a, oh, that's a whole other discussion, I think. Well, and I'm going to get to um, that in a minute because there are some people, I talked to someone yesterday who said, Hey, I, don't be surprised if the, if the summer kills this thing off, but I'll get to that in a minute. I, let me ask this. I talked to someone at LSU. Uh, I'm, as you know, I'm from Louisiana. I talked to someone at LSU who said, Hey, I think what we're going to try to do institutionally is, is small classes, and I was, you know, he didn't define what small was, but smaller classes would meet as normal, and then these big, large. And we all go, you know, if you go to a big school, you know, Ole Miss, Alabama, right. LSU, whatever. You, we've all been through these freshman level classes where there's 400 people in the stupid class, and you know, it's just, it's, it, we're just, get, we're going through the motions a little bit. He said, I think those will be done either online or they'll be done, you know, dividing the class up. If it's a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, where you'll go once and you'll Zoom twice, or you know, what maybe you go Monday and it's online Wednesday, Friday to keep the numbers down. Is that a is that a strategy that makes some sense? I mean, maybe I still think having the professor on the screen, like you, like you said, with the GAs in the room, would be a better way to do it. I, I just I don't I don't see the point of isolating 
uh, young people. I okay. just, you know, because in the if you, if you want to, de- the, the goal is eventually to have immunity from it. If you, if you want to get herd immunity, people need to expose it and pass it on to each other. And there's no better people to do that than the young people who are responsible for the majority of the social interactions. Um, and so that's another key factor into the whole herd immunity thing, right? I mean, it's not the percentage of people who have it; it's the percentage of the social interactions. And if you can get to that sixty to seventy percent level of the social interactions uh, of 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 the people who have those of being immune, then you've got herd immunity. It's yeah. not this magic sixty to seventy percent population; it's sixty to seventy percent of the social interactions that are necessary. Um, so, so in many ways, it would make sense, right, to bring kids from all over the country back to Norman, Oklahoma, or I don't know, pick your school, I don't care, uh, Oxford, Mississippi, Fayetteville, Arkansas, wherever, and Gainesville, Florida, and, and let them interact with one another and sort of spread the damn thing around a little bit, right? Yeah, I, I wish we'd have done that from the beginning, but we didn't know. I mean, and, yeah, and there was yeah. nothing wrong with doing it the way we did it because we didn't know then, but now we know. Yeah, that's um, my thing. I, I, I'm, I'm, and it's not a Trump thing or an anti-Trump thing or whatever. I get why we did what we did. I know there are people out there like it was stupid and they want to go back and you, again. I mean, not to not to reiterate, but the, the unknown and at the time it was still kind of unknown. The unknown is a scary thing, and you have to overreact. The Oxford Exxon Podcast is also brought to you by Pinnacle Trust. Pinnacle Trust, based in Madison, Mississippi. They've got clients in more than 20 states, advisors in multiple states as well. Founded in 1997, Pinnacle Trust provides detailed, specialized investment management, financial planning, retirement planning for individuals and businesses, and much more. At Pinnacle Trust, investing is treated like a commodity. Decisions are made using objective information and research, not emotions. So regardless of your level of wealth, Pinnacle Trust will sit down with you, listen to your goals, Study your expenses and put forth a comprehensive, detailed financial and retirement plan built just for you. It's pintrust.com, P-I-N-N trust.com. Mention you heard about Pinnacle Trust on the podcast. You get 10% off your first year's fees. We're also brought to you by John Edwards of Regency Travel Incorporated in Memphis. When this is all over, everyone is going to want to get away. They're going to want to get out of town, get out of their homes. They're going to want to go on a vacation And you want to book one that will create a lifetime of unique memories. And that's where John comes in. He's part of Virtuoso. It's a worldwide network of travel partners that allows John to supply his clients with added values and unique benefits that are simply not available to other travelers. All you do is you give him a call, you give him an email, and uh, you give him some parameters, you give him a budget, and uh, he'll give you options. You don't have to live in or near Memphis to take advantage of his services. And uh, he's great at what he does. He'll take great care of you. 901-494-3387. Or send him an email at jedwards at regencytravel.net. First-time clients can save $50 off their first booked trip just by telling John you heard about Regency Travel on the podcast. We're also brought to you by Oxford University Bank, OUB, locally owned and operated right here in Oxford. When you deposit money at OUB, that money and the vast majority of the bank's profits go right back into the Oxford community. OUB gives you the comfort of home, all the benefits the big mega banks provide, all the technology and products you can want, all with a personal touch. OUB offers its customers the absolute best cash checking account. It's called Casasa. And with Casasa, OUB will pay customers 2.5% interest on their balances up to $50,000 and refund ATM fees nationwide. They also have a commercial checking account now paying 1% interest. As long as you keep $10,000 in the account, it comes with fully interactive online banking. To learn more, Go to liveoxfordbankoxford.com or call 662-234-6668. OUB is FDIC insured. 
And we're brought to you by Bluff City Advisory Group. They're dedicated to building the future you desire. Founded in Memphis in 2019, their team is comprised of established and seasoned financial experts who came together to serve individuals and families of their beloved hometown. The firm is built on decades of wealth management experience, and they've seen it all. Their financial advisors have a reputation for professional excellence, and their clients rely on their high level of confidence and integrity. So whether you need guidance on developing a financial plan, creating a customized executive benefits program for your business, or preparing a detailed asset allocation analysis, Bluff City Advisory will provide forward-thinking and cost-effective investment strategies customized to uniquely fit each client. 901-365-3447 or email ben, that's B-E-N, at bluffcityadvisory.com. And we're brought to you by Whitney McNutt of Tommy Morgan Incorporated Realtors, serving you for all your real estate needs in Oxford and Tupelo. Whitney sells condos, land, commercial, and residential family homes, 662-567-2573 or 662-842-3844. Because let's, let's say the models had been right and this thing were as deadly as people feared it may have been and you did nothing and then it was right, it's a disaster. That, yeah, that's that's true. And so, to me, um, that makes that part of it fairly elementary. It, it's it's you have to prepare. If you're told something can be on a scale of one to ten, it can be a ten in terms of 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 of, of disastrous. You have to prepare for the ten, and then it's it's kind of like a hurricane, right? If they tell you, "Hey, a hurricane's in the Gulf, and it's coming, and this damn thing could be a a Category Five, it could be uh, an absolute killer." Okay, well, it's the right thing to do to evacuate and and all of those things. And then if it turns out to be a whimper, great. Right. You know what I mean? I mean, you know, the the, the opposite approach would be stupid to go, I don't think it's going to be anything. And then it comes in and it's it's a killer and it's mass casualties. But now, to your point, now that we know, okay, here's we know more about it. Here's what it is. I think a different set of reactions are required. Yeah, I think that's what's got a lot of people frustrated is just, you know, we're seeing – you know, facts are finally bearing themselves out and we have so much more data now as to how dangerous it is and for what populations is dangerous. I think people are frustrated. I mean, myself included with, you know, let's, uh, let's open things back up and, and, and continue to protect the vulnerable. Cause if you want to see one failure of everyone, that's been the failure. The failure has been to protect the vulnerable, to protect the nursing homes and the long-term care centers has been an absolute failure across the entire country yeah. um, and, and the world for that matter. Yeah. Um, and, and so, and whether that's, you know, you can blame whoever you want, state, local officials, federal officials, whatever, sure. it doesn't really matter, but it's a failure of all of them Agreed. Uh, to protect the vulnerable uh, because we knew from data out of Italy, data out of Spain, um, Data from several places before we had our huge uh, issues was that was the that was the major problem, and so not isolating those places. I think Florida probably did the best job of that uh, personally, uh, just looking at their data. But I think that um, that was really the one true failure of this entire thing. You can talk about testing failures and this failure and that failure, but the one true failure was just protecting the people most at risk, um, and we just didn't do that. Okay, so this is obviously the Oxford Exxon podcast. It's a podcast that was built around sports, and most of the people who listen to it listen to it at least originally because they like sports. So I'm going to ask you the, the, the thing that's on my mind at all times. It's, it's the one thing that I write about the most. It's the one thing that the people that I talk to talk about the most, and so here we go. 
You mentioned Alan. Uh, you're referencing Alan Jones, who is the chief of emergency medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Great guy. Uh, have a nothing but a ton of respect for Alan. I, so I threw a hypothetical at him. When was this? I guess two weeks ago, a week ago. I lose track. I threw a hypothetical at him where I said, okay, 55,000 people go into a football game. I guess I used Oxford as an example, but it could have been anywhere. I used a lot of different college towns. Iowa. I think it was Iowa. Maybe it was Iowa. Yeah. Okay, so we'll do that. We'll, we'll do that. Well, Iowa versus Iowa State. They're going to play each other in uh, in Iowa City right there with the cool tradition waving to the kids in the hospital. We're going to do it there in uh, early September, and I'm going to put 55,000 people in the stadium. Okay? And I said, what happens to if I do that, and he said, well, 10% of the 55,000 will get infected, which is 5,500. And he said, and 20% of that 5,500, which is about 1,100, if my math is correct, would require hospitalization, which is obviously a massive number. And if that's the case, I thought to myself, if you extrapolate that out, and obviously you wouldn't have one isolated game in Iowa City, you would have games elsewhere. If you were playing in Iowa, you would be playing in knoxville and you would be playing in west lafayette you would be playing in bloomington and you would be playing in columbia missouri and columbia south carolina and fayetteville and oxford and starkville and probably itabina and there'd probably be a game in jackson i'm guessing and maybe a game in hattiesburg and you get the drift on and on and on that would that would be catastrophic so tell me your thoughts about that when i when i tell you that that scenario that he paint that he played out what what are your what's your i guess your reaction to it yeah, he he did kind of walk it back when he he said that was if nothing was done and uh, you know some I think he he kind of later on kind of qual- made some qualifications to that. Yeah, uh, we talked about that, mask but, and and yeah, we right, talked about right, yeah, right. So I, I don't I, I don't agree with the number just because I don't know where the ten percent comes from. Um, and I think that's one of my frustrations with a lot of what we've done is a lot of the numbers have just kind of been I don't know where people get them from six feet, you know two weeks a lot of the stuff is very frustrating to me because it's not uh based on uh any kind of information that we actually know i mean the one possible mass spread event at an outdoor event of of, of significant size like that was maybe bergamo italy the soccer game. Uh, the, the soccer game yeah but nobody knows nobody's done contact tracing for that no nobody really understands where that number what number of people may have gotten infected there and i'm not saying that it didn't happen i'm just saying right. you know there's no data for that because we know at the time of that game mass spread had already occurred so whether the game just kind of exacerbated that situation um i i, I think that's more likely the problem than the game was some kind of sentinel event um to spread it because by that time it was if you know if you're going to follow an epi curve it had already been there for a long time and and peak infection probably had already occurred so i don't think that it it, it is some huge sentinel event like say mardi gras was for new orleans um and so uh, i i don't i don't know where the 10 percent number comes from and so if you're going to look at outdoor events um, outdoor events are not known to be mass spread events in general. Um, look at spring break in Florida. Look at, you know, beaches packed in California, beaches packed in several places. Outdoor mass spread events are unusual for this virus. It, it has not been documented at all. 
um, a, 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 to be a major mode of spread. So to say that 10% of the population in that stadium or in every stadium is going to get it, I think is the first false assumption. I mean, I just don't believe that. And it, it depends on so many factors. Number one, who's there? Number two, how many people are there that are infected? Uh, number three, how open air is it? How windy is it that day? Is it sunny? Is it cloudy? I think all those things play a role into what's going to happen there. And I think 10% is probably a massive overestimation of the spread in an outdoor venue. Um, you may and, have just re- you may have just answered my question. An outdoor venue in your in your mind is is far safer than an indoor venue, say a a, a Superdome, a Mercedes-Benz no Stadium. Yes, no question. I, I think I think that a dome environment is different than an outdoor environment. Um, for, for no question about that. But I think the main reason for that is just UV light uh, and and air circulating and diluting the virus in the air. Um, and so I think that um, you know, based on a study out of Australia, the government study here. I mean, that's that's a fact, right? I mean, we know that heat, humidity, UV light, the virus just doesn't like it, and it doesn't survive long, especially UV light. Um, and so I think that, that that's an overestimation of infection. Um, and, and that's if the virus is a significant concern come uh, early September. Um, it, it, and it may well not be. But I think that um, that I, I don't like the 10% number. And I agree with a lot of what Alan said otherwise, other than that, that 10%. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know necessarily that 20% of hospitals are going to be infected because uh, if you if you look at the populations that have been well studied, that twenty percent number is not really correct. It's correct when you don't know the the denominator. Uh, but now that we know the denominator is massively larger than we knew it to be from the beginning, um, and which falsely elevated the mortality rate, which falsely elevated everything we knew about it. Uh, now that we know the denominator is is a, is a much larger number. That twenty percent, and he's right based on our original uh, math from the beginning. But that number is not twenty percent anymore. It's much less than that. Um, and so uh, I think. I think that the the number the initial number gets inflated, and then because of the antibody testing, we know that twenty percent is is no longer the number, um, and also just all the PCR testing and people coming back positive. Our denom- denominator has come has made that number come way down uh, to probably closer to under ten. Um, and and I think that if you look across the nation, that's a more accurate representation of of how many people who get infected wind up in the hospital. Um, and, and so um, I, I don't think that we're going to have any kind of a mass spread event like that in an outdoor uh, venue. Um, I think the main concern in a place like that would be, you know, under the shelter, right? I mean, you're in the concession stand and you're waiting in line to get your food or, right. you know, whatever. Bathrooms. I think that's really, yeah, I think that's really kind of where you should be more concerned for some spreading to occur than people out in the, in the stands. Um, and, you know, maybe even the box box areas, you know, that would kind of be another concern as someone who, 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 uh, goes there uh for games and, and is in a is in a box area um i would definitely be if it was still a concern then i would definitely be sitting outside in the box area not inside uh for the most part there's so much i want to get to and I'm, I'm doing such a crappy job of interviewing because i'm i'm so fascinated in so many different things that you say that I, i'm the the things that you say send me they send my feeble little mind going in different directions i apologize i know i'm doing a crappy job of this uh, I've had an SEC person tell me over the cor- course of the last few days, he said, you know, don't be surprised if the league tries to uh, kind of 
slowly integrate fans into the stadium, all while sort of begging people not to congregate on campuses, referencing tailgating. Is is tailgating like you know we, we, you you see the the Grove on a big Saturday, where it's just humanity. I mean, it is shoulder to shoulder. It's hot. There's a canopy of trees. There's all of that stuff. Is the Grove or an an, an area like the Grove more more susceptible to spread than Vault Hemingway or a stadium like Vault Hemingway would be? I don't know. I think, I mean, I think the real question is, is, is it's, it's outdoors, number one. So it's definitely not like an indoor situation. Um, so, but it's just very densely packed. Um, and people are sitting there around each other talking, you know, and, um, and cause it's so loud, people kind of get close to each other to be able to talk. Yeah. But uh, so I think that, yeah, I mean, there's definitely some concern there. Um, I, I don't know how much, uh, I mean, if you, if you, if you, the the other concern about that is there are clearly people in an at risk population there, um, and so it's not just a bunch of young spring chickens like it is in a classroom, um, and so I th- I think that th- there's definitely uh, I would definitely have pause there. I don't think that it would be a significant um, event if people did get infected from it. And when I say significant, I don't think you know hundreds of people are going to get infected by being in the Grove. Um, you know, there might be one guy who's a quote unquote super spreader who, you know, who gives it to, you know, a few people then who give it to some others. Uh, but I, I, I think that first off, I think the SEC should wait till after May uh, to make any kind of, at least May um, to make any kind of decision uh, based on that. Uh, because I think, and, and we can talk about, uh, why I think we should wait till the end of May later. I know you're probably going to get to that, but um, I, I don't, I, I don't know. I don't think anybody knows, uh, but I think it's way less than uh, people think. Um, and, I, and I'm basing that off of um, kind of beaches, parks, you know, even restaurants. There's only really been a couple of uh, super spreader events in restaurants. Um, and so I, I just, I don't know that in an outdoor venue, a significant transmission spread event is, is very possible. The, the only one that's ever occurred was two people. Um, it's never been more than three people. Um, and that was in China. Uh, so, I, you know, you're just not going to have some event where a hundred people will just get infected out, out in an outdoor setting, in my opinion. Okay. So I talked to another medical person yesterday who said that Hey, you know, we don't know. There's a chance that this thing comes back with a vengeance in the fall. He said, but there's also a chance that it dies out over the course of the summer. That by the time we get to late August, September, it's not really a factor anymore. Yeah, I think that might be my most frustrating thing. One of the most frustrating things for me during this whole thing has been people trying to downplay weather. Um but here's the problem with that is, I mean, every other coronavirus is, is very seasonal. I mean, they're, they're all very seasonal. And so I, I don't understand. I mean, I sort of understand because there were a lot of unknowns, but it was a coronavirus. Uh, and so we knew it was going to have some seasonality. The, if, you, if you look at the curves of the original SARS virus and overlap our current curve with that, and then uh, multiply the original SARS virus by about 40 to 50 times, the curves are just like exactly the same. Uh, you know, you've got this early peak in January, February, kind of calms down a little bit, spreads farther worldwide, 
shoots up this big, huge peak in March and April. And then as May happens, this, it, it just, it just, the original SARS just died in May. Yeah. Uh, and I think maybe early June might've been the last cases of, of the original SARS. And that's why I say we need to wait till May or in the May or early June to make any kind of decision about football and other sports. And I mean, I would even say that for some summer classes at colleges. Uh, I mean, it, it may be come June, we're looking back saying, okay, we're kind of done with this thing. Uh, you know, it just kind of burned itself out. And well, not, to interrupt you, not to interrupt you and stay on the same path, but I, I'll tell you an interesting anecdote. I, I was begged not to cite the person, so I won't. It's a Major League Baseball person who said, hey, you know, that Arizona plane's not going to happen. And when he said it, I thought, oh, God, he's about to tell me that they're canceling the season. And I said, you mean the 30 teams in one state? He goes, yeah, it's stupid. And I'm like, yeah, it's not going to work, whatever. He goes, I think we're going to have games in our stadium in August and September with fans. And I said, why do you say that? He goes, I can't tell you why, but I can just tell you that's what we kind of think deep down. He goes, we can't say it out loud, but that's what we think. We're going to have games in our stadium with fans August, September, and now there's this, it's kind of trickling out that Major League Baseball is is aggressively planning for a uh, July 1st, July 2nd start to their season. They can play, the players have agreed to play till Thanksgiving. They can uh, late in the season, if it's just too cold in places like Detroit or New York or Philadelphia or whatnot, they can they can move those games to a warm weather place or an indoor venue type place. They can get it done. They can play the postseason in November, There's et cetera, et cetera, not to get down the baseball trail. But the point that I thought was fascinating was he said, hey, August, September, I think we're going to have fans in the stands. I, I would say that's very possible. I, I mean, and I think if Major League Baseball does that, and nothing happens, uh, then I think come September, college football could look very normal. Oh yeah, if you're a, if you're a college football fan, Mike, and Major League Baseball does that, and and you you owe it to your you owe it you owe it to your sport to go buy the Major League Baseball package or go buy a Major League Baseball hat or jersey or something because they would be the heroes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And 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 then, um, I, I, yeah, I. I think that that's very possible um, because, I mean, again, I mean, this thing's it's a coronavirus, and I just, you know, it's not. It's, it, people keep saying don't compare it to the flu, and that's exactly right. I mean, because f- flu isn't nearly as seasonal as a coronavirus is, as far as you know, flu can kind of stretch out sometimes, or it can start really early uh, sometimes, and the season can kind of shift some. I mean, coronaviruses they just they're just not a large factor in the summer, uh, and. You know, could it mutate? Could you know? I mean, all, all just sure. All, all those things are possible, um, and and that's why. But that I mean, I think that's why we just have to wait. I, you know, I, I, instead of two more weeks, I'm saying wait a month. You know, uh, because I think it, within a month we will have, we will really know where we stand as far as um, what is what is the weather doing to this to this bug. The Oxford Exxon podcast is brought to you in part by Dead Soxy. If you're already a Dead Soxy customer, first, thank you. Secondly, here's all you have to do to uh, introduce more people to Dead Soxy and get free Dead Soxy stuff of your own. Uh, Take your personal referral code from Dead Soxy, send it to your friends and family via email, text, or social, and uh, for every new customer you produce, uh, you'll both get $10. They get $10 in 
free socks, you get $10 in free socks. You can keep uh, earning freebie socks for life because there's no limit on how much you can earn. Just share your link and collect the rewards. People helping people as we all should, especially right now at Dead Soxy. It's deadsoxy.com. We're also brought to you by the Iron Horse Grill. It is located at 320 East Pearl Street. It's uh, the perfect place to enjoy lunch, dinner, or Sunday brunch. And it also uh, specializes in on-site large event catering for up to 250 people and off-site full catering services, especially beverage catering. So if you're planning a birthday party, a graduation celebration, a rehearsal dinner, or a wedding reception, you want to be able to enjoy the moment. And the Iron Horse Grill is your answer. It's a one-stop shop for beverage services for a 250- to 500-person wedding or even a 3,500-person gala. It's one of the largest beverage caterers in Mississippi. It can service the entire state. Call Sarah Black at 601-398-0151 for your catering needs. Knock that off your worry list and let the Iron Horse Grill make your event one that is memorable forever. We're also brought to you by Grenada Nissan. If you're in the market for a Nissan vehicle, Grenada Nissan's the place to go. They've got a complete selection of new and previously owned Nissan vehicles, great lease deals as well. It's GrenadaNissanUSA.com. All you do when you go in and see Gene and Sandy is tell them you heard about Grenada Nissan on our podcast or at RebelGrove.com, and you'll get Rebel Savings on top of the already great deals at Grenada Nissan. Uh, we're also brought to you by Nest and Wild. Sleep better with a Nest and Wild mattress. Nest and Wild is a Mississippi-based mattress company making a high-quality mattress delivered right to your door. They make buying a new mattress easy. Every Nest and Wild mattress is one foot thick, giving you comfort and support that will last. A lot of online brands sell an 8-inch or 10-inch mattress with less support and durability, but not Nest and Wild. From the twin to the California king, every Nest and Wild mattress is one foot thick, 100% American-made, and the pricing is competitive when compared to the rest of the mattress companies. And in fact, we'll make it even better because we're going to give you a promo code that I'll tell you about in a bit. It's a no-risk decision. Nest and Wild believes in their product so much, they're offering a 99-night trial on every mattress. So try it out. Sleep on it for 99 nights. And if you don't like it, you can return it. Nestandwild.com. Order your mattress. Use the podcast code REBEL20. That's REBEL20. And get 20% off your purchase. And uh, your mattress will arrive at your door in three to five days. And the other thing is, is like I said, I mean, this this thing's probably called the rolls. You know, it's kind of gone through and gotten who it can get, and it's it kind of burns out just for that very reason, not necessarily from a weather perspective, but it's already it's already gotten the vulnerable. Um, and so, in that in that respect, um, it, it may very well um, kill its own self out uh, by, by its own very nature of of being very aggressive early. Um, in what is essentially a horrendous flu season compressed into three months, because uh, I think that's essentially what we see, right? We see like a double mortality rate over influenza compressed into three months. And that's why the death tolls look so bad is because instead of spreading them out over, you know, six months, we have, we've gotten them in essentially two March and April. Uh, and so um, it, it makes it look a, a whole lot worse because it's so compressed in time. So is this something, uh, the flip side of that, of course, is I guess the, the, while it could burn out, I guess it, there are there are examples of, of these viruses that come back with a vengeance. If it did, what would that scenario look like? Um, well, I think we would have to be better prepared from a, a vulnerable population perspective, uh, and I think we have plenty of time to do that. Um, so protecting nursing homes, long-term care centers, um, I think schools should still be in 
for the reasons we've already detailed. Um, and, uh, you know, people should just kind of go about their regular business and adopt the kind of Swedish model as far as, you know, yeah, we're, we're doing when our social distancing, we're going to keep things open, but we're going to be smart about everything. And I think the key there is to trust the populace to behave. I mean, I mean, you know, we, we can if you give us some guidelines, for the most part, people are going to do what you ask them to do if they realize their behaviors put other people at risk. Now, clearly, there are clowns that aren't going to behave. I mean, but that's just society in general. And no matter what you do, whether it's, you know, driving cars or, or whatever, people aren't going to do what they're supposed to. Um, but in general, most of the population is going to behave in the manner that you ask them to to prevent, you know, um, spread to other folks, especially people that are vulnerable. Um, and so I think it's more, um, I think, I think we would still reopen, uh, still be open. I think we would just kind of more be in that, uh, Swedish mode because I mean, if you look at Sweden, I mean, their death tolls are down by like 80% now. Yeah. Um, and, and so they, they, their model is probably the one that most people should have done. And I realize you can't really compare their population to our population. We're definitely fatter, more diabetic, more, you know, all the risk factors that are traditional that make our mortality rate higher. Um, <clears throat> and so I, I think that there is some validity to people saying, don't compare us to Sweden. Uh, but, you know, they also by anybody testing have probably somewhere between 10 to 30% immunity already. So um, the likelihood that they'll see some kind of resurgence is pretty small. Um, and, but I, I think that that's what it would look like. It would, it would look kind of like, um, it would look kind of like Sweden. And now what, what will we be doing with uh, mass events? I don't know. I think that's just going to be up to, um, you know, the, the uh, conferences and, um, NFL and whatnot to, to make those decisions. But I'm, I'm fairly confident we're not going to be there. I, I, I really am. I just, I'll, I'll be surprised if, if we have to deal with this again in the fall. It's a really trivial question here. I just thought of it. Uh, you, 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 you talked about the uh, indoor versus outdoor arenas. So Ole Miss is scheduled to play Baylor in, in uh, Reliant Stadium in Houston or what's it called? NRG or whatever it's called. And I guess that's a I guess that's a retractable roof. I'm not sure. It's it's basically a dome. Uh, obviously, the Saints play in a in a dome. Um, the the Falcons play in a dome. There's there's domes all over the country. Uh, breaking news. Uh, are are those facilities? Would, would would if you were the college football czar, would you tell teams, hey, if if you're going to play Ole Miss and Baylor, if you're going to play Labor Day weekend, y'all need to figure it out. Play in Waco or Oxford. Play outdoors. Don't play inside the inside the stadium in Houston. Yeah, I think if it was still a problem, that's definitely an option. Um, you know, I, I I think you know, could the Saints play? You know, it's a you know, two it's Tulane Stadium out outdoors. Yeah, yeah, they could yeah. they could go to so, Baton Rouge. I mean, they could play at Tiger Stadium. Yeah, right. That's true. They go they go to Baton Rouge. So um, I think there's definitely some options there that could be um, tweaked and and uh, we could figure out how to deal with it. But I, I think. Yeah, I think that would not be a bad idea to kind of get the venues outdoors if it was still a problem, uh, you know, and then, you know, people are just going to have to, I mean, if you're an at-risk person, you shouldn't be going to the game, right? I mean, that that's yeah. really what it comes down to uh, because, I mean, playing, playing without fans, I mean, I don't know, that just seems so bizarre um, to me and, and it just kind of takes a lot of the energy out of the sporting events to not have live fans. Um, cause you know, teams just feed on that energy. Um, and that, you know, those momentum swings during games and a lot of that is fan based. 
uh, it would just it would just be such a disappointment. Um, but I think I think you would have to I think you could have them, and, and you just advise people that if you're an at risk person, um, you know, if you have if you're a bad overweight diabetic with heart disease, you probably shouldn't be there. Um, you yeah. know, I think you, I think you still have to let people make that choice. I do too. Um, I do too. I, I think I think there there's a certain degree of of kind of knowing who you are, and it's it's the uh, it's a bad analogy, but I keep using it. It's I'm 50 and I'm I'm fairly fit. I work out and all that stuff. But if I go play a game of pickup at the Oxford Rec Center with a bunch of 20 year old guys, and I blow my ACL, it's kind of on me, isn't it? I mean, I knew better. Yes. It was dumb. It was a dumb thing to do. I mean, you know, if I go out and go for a jog and, and I tear my ACL, well, that's just shitty luck. And that sucks for me. But if I go do it, if I go snap my Achilles because I'm trying to run up and down with some 21-year-olds, well, that's kind of my stupidity. And I, I'm, not, I'm not saying anything bad should happen to people who make bad choices, but there is a certain – there is something to that. I mean, you know, you, you – you you make you, we make choices and so I don't know it, you know it, it's a, the other part of this college the college football thing and and I've disagreed with some uh, colleagues that I, I have tons of respect for who are so much better than I am at what I do I I still I have two problems with the college football without fans thing one is it's college football essentially admitting that hey our whole model is is not built around the student athlete the way that we said it has been for years. You're letting the, you're letting all every bit of that toothpaste out of the tube. And then if you say, Hey, no fans allowed. If you're a school that's in a league that doesn't have a giant TV deal, why even get started? If you can't yeah. let fans in and you can't open, you can't charge, you can't have a gate. What are you doing? You're not, yeah, a, you're not, not a, you're not a nonprofit. I mean, at some point you, you know, you, you're not a charity is my point. I keep using this one game. San Jose State is scheduled to open the season at Central Michigan. And if you tell the people in Mount Pleasant that you're not going to allow fans in the game, what the hell reason is there to play it? Yes. Uh, yeah, I agree with that for 100%. Yeah, it's just – I don't know. I think I think no matter what uh, things are played, I think, I think fans are there and I think people – are just going to have to take responsibility for their own actions. You know, that's, I know that's shocking for most people to hear, uh, but that's really it. And, and the other thing is, is, I mean, if you think about it, just, let's just, let's just play a quick numbers game here. Okay. If 50% of deaths are in nursing homes, which is about the going rate worldwide. Okay. okay. That means if 60,000 people have died, 30,000 people not in nursing homes have died. So, and a lot of those people are that at-risk population. Ninety um, percent of deaths are in people over sixty. So, you know, you can you can tailor college and NFL and MLB and NBA to those numbers. And I think first and foremost is to protect the nursing homes. If you can do that, you can you can limit you can limit this thing so much as far as its death toll. Um, if there is some kind of resurgence, I mean, there's plenty of time to prepare for the fall, plenty of time for us to, to take the necessary precautions to make personal protective equipment, to um, have a contact trace, isolate programs in place for nursing homes and other outbreak centers. I mean, all that stuff, we have so much time to prepare for that and to have it in place by then. 
that I just don't think there's any reason not to have fans if if we do everything properly. Uh, and, and and if we do that, we could substantially limit any kind of quote unquote second wave, uh, just because we know who to protect. All right, you just made me think of something, and I know I've kept you far far long enough. Let's say. Uh, Major League Baseball starts back in July, okay? And they, they do it without fans initially, which I think is what exactly they will do. I, I think that's very clear. Uh, we'll, we'll use a team, that the Tampa Bay Rays. They're uh, someone in their front office or someone in their, uh, you know, a manager, a coach, a, 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 one of the people that's a support staff people test positive for coronavirus. Do you have to, at that point, isolate that team for two weeks? Or is there a way to contact trace test make sure everybody's okay and then keep going no that's exactly what i would do the, the latter I, I would absolutely do contact test trace uh there and and because it may very well be that because the most likely thing is that they got that from somebody that they know right they probably got it from somebody in their family i mean that is by far and away the most common mode of 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 transmission and so what you'll probably find is that person got it from somebody in their family when you do a test trace and isolate that person gets isolated you test everybody on the team everybody that person came in contact with and whoever's positive you isolate them and 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 that's it i mean i think on a small scale like that from a mlb from a from a team perspective that's that's not a difficult thing to do it doesn't require a ton of manpower um the team could even have each team could even have somebody that runs that show for them. Um, you know, the MLB could put something in place to where you know each major league baseball team has two uh, people who run that situation for them. You know, somebody's in charge, and then somebody is this contact test trace isolate person who goes and tests everyone who came into contact with that person to just isolate the problem and deal with it. Um, and if the players are um, you know, I think a lot of this also just comes down to the players and their comfort level. I mean, the players, I mean, they're they're so low risk. They're the they're the healthiest of the healthy. Um, yeah. You know, even if even if one of them gets it, they're unlikely to have a problem. I think you're still going to have to isolate a player if they do get it. But um, you know, I, I think that that's what you have to do. That that's the model. I mean, even our hospital. I mean, that's kind of the plan. Is once this kind of dies down, is to is to have this contact test trace isolate program in place um, for uh, the county. Uh, to be able to isolate uh, the patients that um, the, the new cases, uh, and I think that um, if there, if it is if it is still a problem, then that that's going to be the best way to deal with it, um, and and I think that that would be satisfactory to to most of the population. Um, I, I I think by then everybody's going to be ready for some sports, and. Um, uh, most of the population will have come around to the fact that if we're going to have to live with this for a while, then then this is this is the way we should do it. Fascinating stuff. I really appreciate your time. Kept you for uh, almost an hour here, so I really appreciate it. Enjoy the rest of your weekend, and hope to talk to you soon. All right, Neil. Thanks for having me. You have a good day. You too. Bye bye. Bye. Take a break in the show to tell you about Community Mortgage located in Oxford, Memphis, Soto County, and Chattanooga. Underwriting and processing is done in Memphis, so you're getting local underwriting and understand your market a leader in condo financing in Oxford, and the flow-down option where you can lock in the current rate, but if rates go down before you close, you get the lower rate, 662-234-2704 or J-L-O-W-E at communitymtg.com. Also brought to you by G&M Pharmacy on South Lamar 
in Oxford, also Tyson Drugs on the Square in Holly Springs. Both those locations are open for regular business hours. Tyson's is utilizing a walk-up window, and GM is offering curbside service there in Oxford. Both stores are dedicated to local delivery and still able to deliver same day as well. 662-236-2222. The podcast brought to you by Visit Oxford. Visit OxfordMS.com is the website. Click the very top so you have to support Oxford during COVID-19. You can see a list of all retailers, restaurants with curbside with delivery options to uh, help you out there if you need that list. Also ways to support hospitality workers who are out of jobs right now in Oxford between Tip Roulette and some other options that you have. Again, visit OxfordMS.com. Podcast also brought to you by Special Orthopedic Group. They are open in Tupelo and Oxford. You can skip the ER for urgent ortho-related injuries at both locations. They're offering, offering virtual health telemedicine. Patients have direct access to all SOG physicians and nurse practitioners. Patients have 24-hour access to appointments at 662-767-4200 or SOGMS.com. No referral is needed. Walk-ins are welcome. And then last but not least, we're brought to you by In-House Interior and Design, 662-681-6241. You can call. You can text. They are available for you. I talked to Nikki this week. They've been picking up more clients because people are home right now. They're seeing things around their house they want to change. They want to fix up. They offer new client gifts. They offer dorm room appointments whenever that does uh, come with discounts as well. So you can find out more. Text or call 662-681-6241. Thanks to Neil and uh, Dr. Michael Cuttingham there for that portion of the show. We're going to jump right back into the Raptors Music and Food Hotline. And now Neil's interview with Ole Miss soccer coach Matt Mott. Ole Miss soccer coach Matt Mott joins us on the podcast. Uh, First of all, uh, thanks for spending some time with us. been good uh, seeing you out and about, riding your bike, and uh, making people look bad here in the hood. (laughs) Uh, Thanks, Neil. Thanks for having me. Uh, Yeah, it's – we're spending a lot of time in the neighborhood, aren't we? Uh, walking back and forth. I, I see you walking these dogs, and I often wonder who's walking who. Well, the dogs walking, or are you walking them? But the yeah, answer is the sure. answer is Rizzo is walking uh, both <laughs> Gus and me on a daily basis. Although yesterday, yeah. I got I got him out in the heat of the day, and uh, I didn't realize how hot it was, quite frankly. And and uh, they both were kind of looking at me like, "Hey, can we go home? Are we are we done? <laughs> what are we doing?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was warm. It's warm again. It's warm again today for sure. So. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about fall sports and obviously uh, the, the the bulk of those conversations have been about football and understandably so. Another fall sport is soccer and we haven't spent a lot of time talking about what happens with soccer, but I'm you're on the same kind of calendar uh, as football you uh your your kids are not your kids being your players your players are not sure. on campus right now there's nothing going on uh the summer summer classes have been put online only what is kind of your day-to-day week-to-week interaction with with your players as you i guess go through the, the mental portion of of saying hey we, we've got a season to prepare for yeah it's a great question Neil. we we uh you know we right away when this started um, you know, set up a Zoom call. We have a weekly Zoom meeting with the entire team. Then we have uh, individual meetings uh, or group meetings, sorry, small group meetings with the, the team where we're able to, to watch videos. So we break them by position, you know, defenders and goalkeepers, forwards, midfielders. Um, and so it's been really great. My assistant coaches have been fantastic in preparing quality video for them to watch and they shoot it to them you know, before the, the uh, meeting. So the players have a lot of interaction. They talk about the different clips. and But it's tricky. It, it really is. And, um, you know, timelines are flying all over the place of what we might be able to do or not do. But, you know, our, our team has done a good job. We, we have um, 
on our Tuesday, we have what's called culture class. So we kind of work on some team culture. My assistant, Jess Hiskey, has done a great job of creating fun little uh, activities for them to do. We have uh, what was called the Rebel Challenge. You'll like this, uh, the Rebel Challenge. We broke the team. We have five seniors, so each senior has a team. We broke, them, broke the whole team up. So the team that finished first in the Rebel Challenge gets to go out to dinner, to a steak dinner in town with, uh, with me. Uh, the team that finished second goes to a lesser dinner with uh, Coach Thompson, and and all the way down to the last place team goes to Taco Bell with uh, <laughs> with with Georgia, our director of ops. So it was quite the motivation to uh, to win, but it was some really good. We did some videos, you know, of them um, training. We did a you know lookalike background video on the Zoom and. Uh, there were some, there were some great ones. So um, we we've tried to keep them light. You know, I I will be honest. Um, you know, we we're worried as a staff about motivation as they continue to work out alone yeah. and, at their houses and yards. So that that's all a big concern for ours for sure. But uh, they're, they're do, we're doing the best we can. I would say under the circumstances. I know that an individual player at home can with, with the ball and they can do some some ball drills. They can do some things. What. What are you sending them in terms of workouts? How many of your players have access to, uh, I guess, to the to the enough equipment to to do a, the the kind of weight program that you would want them to do? What's that look like? What have you been able to provide? What have what what limitations do some of your players have? Yeah, great question. So so we have we have the entire gamut of the of the spectrum. So we have players that have fantastic gyms at their home um that have weight room bars and and all that kind of stuff our strength coach brian wiseman has sent everybody out um conditioning programs and strength programs and so we have that all the way to people that have really nothing that you are using the bands really fortunate that keith carter and our administration was able to send out all the players um bands workout bands um every every athlete uh, on campus so um some of them are at that level and some of them are all the way up to you know a big time personal gym i would say we probably have 75 percent of our team has a, a pretty decent gym to use and you know we've sent them out running packets obviously the biggest thing for us is the conditioning piece at this point you know when we get into the summer it's about getting as, as physically fit as you can um, cardiovascularly. So that's that's a huge, huge part, for obviously, for soccer. And when they come in, I mean, when they come in in the summer, that's what we're working on. So yeah. um, that, that piece is huge. But so we, we're in a pretty decent spot. That way, I would say our motivation, the player's motivation, is, is a little struggle right now just because there's not a lot of light at the end of the tunnel. Um, so trying to keep them motivated to work out by themselves, knowing the season's coming, is, is certainly a challenge. Yeah, because in a typical setting, they've got a strength coach, and they're around each other also, so they 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 can push one another and 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 those kinds of things. And when you don't have that, it it is harder to get up every day. I mean, you, we, we you and I joke about you know whether it's the Peloton and or whether sure. it's it's you know it's um, it's getting on on your bike. It's there is a certain degree of some days some days it's it's harder to. I always think back to P90X where he says, just press play, just press play. <laughs> yeah. But there's days that it's harder to press play than it is other days. And it's a lot easier if you know that, hey, I've got a, a 7 a.m. strength and conditioning deal with my with my team and I got to be there and I'm going to be there. And once I get there, I'm going to be there with my teammates and my friends and there's going to be a coach that pushes me and at 8.30 it's going to be over and it's done and my work's done for, for that morning. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I, I think for us too, like just even, you know, getting out with a soccer ball is, um, 
it, it, you know, at first I think they had no problem with it. And now it's like, okay, how many different things can we do? You know, we, we developed um, my, uh, our, our assistant coach, uh, Richard Beebe, has what's called, we call it the Beebs app, kind of for lack of better terms. But he's done a ton of videos, did a ton of videos the last four years of our players with, you know, doing first touch stuff and stuff on your own. So, you know, we, they, they're able to access that and do some of that stuff. But, you know, right now, Neil, they can't report anything back to us. They can't really tell us what they're doing. You know, we're checking in on them how they're doing, but they, they have, you know, they can't do any of, we can't get any reports from them. So um, they're kind of on their own, on, on their own to do it. And, and, you know, for some that's, it's probably a struggle. How much just kind of yeah. when you when you just talk to them? I know you're a coach and you're thinking about soccer and that kind of thing, but you also care about the players as as individuals as people. How much are are you almost having to kind of play the role of, or not just you, but your staff, almost kind of play the role of therapist a little bit right now? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, we've used Josie Nicholson, who is phenomenal. She's, in my opinion, the best sports psychologist in the, in the in the country um you know i i meet with josie once a week and i tell our players all the time like it's just so such good therapy but she's been on our zoom calls with us in the small groups and she's giving them some homework for stuff to think about that's been really really good but yeah that's a big part of it no doubt every time tuesday mornings we check in with each of them uh how are you doing is everybody safe is everybody healthy um just kind of getting that that across and then the other thing they have is they do have soccer buddies we call it which are kind of their motivational buddy so they they've told us they've done a good job of just checking in with each other are you working out what are you doing what are you doing today so all of that i think is is really good um but certainly we want to start seeing some light hopefully that we know we're going to get back in the fall and and, and get back to it and get back together yeah, you know, that's what I was going to get to. So kids are obviously more resilient than people like you and me are probably at this point. You know, I mean, once they, like, you know, once they get the green light and they say, hey, you guys can report on July the X or August the X or whatever, that, that's going to be a sigh of relief. And then once they do get together and they see each other and all that stuff, and they, they, they're going to, the, the mental part of this is going to, I think, fade away pretty quick. Uh, that's my that's my opinion. They're going to get right back to it. Physically, uh, so your schedule, I can't. I've got your spring schedule up, which obviously was mm-hmm. completely canceled. I don't. I can't find, and it might just be because I'm a bad Googler today. But I can't find your fall schedule. When are you guys scheduled to begin games? Yeah, the August twentieth is our first. Supposed to be our first game. I believe it's August twentieth. So it's that Friday, uh, or sorry, Thursday. Um, we're supposed to play Murray State that Thursday. That opening weekend, we have Murray State and Miami at home. Um, so, so we're supposed to report for preseason August 4th, um, and start training on August 5th, um, and then play August 20th, I believe is the date. So, uh, yeah, so we typically have about a 16 day, uh, you know, preseason camp. Uh, but you know, you did say about the spring. So unfortunately for us, we pushed all of our spring games later in spring just to hope we had a couple guys injured that we were hoping to get back and be able to play. So we didn't get one spring game in, which is really difficult. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're supposed to get six and we didn't get one. Um, where some of the SEC teams played three or four. All of them played, I think, at least two. So we were, you know, we were set up to play LSU and Alabama and, and Sanford and Memphis. Uh, we're going to play Memphis twice. And and so, unfortunately, we didn't get any of those games in the spring, which is, is really difficult from development. So uh, that was definitely disappointing. From a, from a conditioning standpoint, and again, I know that each player is different, but just in general, from we've college football coaches have said, hey, we, we need eight weeks to get – to get uh, kids ready, 
given the fact that you know we didn't have spring, we didn't have an a, a, the the June off season program. That's not that's clearly not going to happen. How long do you need to feel? I mean, obviously, I've I, I've watched a lot of soccer with with Carson <laughs> yeah. and, and and Will and and all that age yeah. group. Uh, there's a lot of running in soccer. How yeah. how long do you need to to feel comfortable putting your team out there and in, in what's going to be a very hot you know early portion of the season? Just from a forget the coronavirus for a minute. Just from a hey, I, I feel comfortable that that they're fit enough to go play and that they're not at risk. How long do you need from a coaching standpoint to kind of get a team ready? Yeah, I think I think we need minimum six weeks. Um, so if 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 we're saying we're getting you know sixteen days, so let's say you know two and a half weeks, something like that, uh, or maybe a little less than that from preseason. So if we're saying August fourth, if we could get a month before that. Um, that would be ideal, obviously. So, if your um, players because, could, if, if your players could report on July one, yep, would you would yep. you be comfortable playing that that August twenty open date? I would, I would. I think we would be in a good spot. You know, the the biggest thing is they're running right now. There's no doubt in my mind they're running. They're doing the conditioning, but what they're not doing is cutting and you know hitting each other and those kind of things that that happen in soccer as you know you yeah. know and, and tackling and and but the, to me the biggest thing for me is the cutting you know the constant cutting that happens in a game is what's really gonna really you know that's what's gonna create the injuries if they're not prepared for it is cutting changing directions jumping landing all of those things that's the big you know running they're gonna be they're gonna be able to pass our fitness test which is a 20-yard straight run back and forth. It's called a beep test. They'll be able to pass that. There's no doubt in my mind. It's the actual playing that concerns me because they haven't played. You know, And, and all summer they play. Right. So we need that time for the cutting, the the, the hitting, the, all, all of that kind of stuff You know, is, is, is crucial. So, yes, if we can get them back in July, I would feel comfortable that we could play August August 20th. I, I do. But as that date gets push back then we really need to consider pushing our start start date back as well a lot of talk about football without fans um and i, I you know and I, there's two different conversations here there's a professional conversation and then there's the there's the amateur conversation the college conversation um you you guys you you've you've built a really solid program at Ole Miss you get a good following people come to your games people enjoy your games it's a it's a a a, a lot of uh, a lot of families do it as a family event. It's uh, it's obviously more affordable to go to than than men's basketball or football or whatnot, and and that's that's cool. I've been to some of the games. It's a lot of people there. It's great. It's a, it's a fun environment. In your mind, as a college coach, as someone who's been in in college athletics for the the, the bulk of your adult career, uh, college games without fans doable or not? Whew. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, it, that's a great question. I mean, and your and your initial reaction tells me <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I don't like it. And and yeah. I mean, it, it's 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 what I struggle with, Matt. You and I've had this conversation out in front of my yeah. house. We've had it out just yeah. in, in the neighborhood. It. it yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not. I'm not interrupting you. I'm just. I'm. I'm adding sure. some context to this. It bothers me, frankly. It's it's one thing, and I don't mean that it's wrong or that we can't do it or that there can't be a special set of circumstances or that whatever. I, I, I'm, I'm open-minded. I'm for sports. Everyone knows that I want sports to be played. Sports need to be played. My career depends on it. Your career depends on it. <laughs> yes. We need sports to be played. I do struggle with the idea that one of your players 
her friends can't be there. The students that she rep- the student body that she represents when she puts on an Ole Miss jersey, she represents the other kids who go to school at the University of Mississippi. She does. If her family can't come watch her play, mm-hmm. and her friends can't be there, and her the student body that she represents, it's not safe for them. I don't know how we look these young ladies in your case in the eye and say it's safe for you. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think it's a great point, and I totally get it. You know, it's so funny. When I first got here, I remember it vividly. So this is going back 10 years now. Vividly saying to our, mar- our marketing people came, and you know, our team wasn't very good, and our marketing people came and, and said to me, you know, this is our plan. This is what we want to do. We're going to do this promotion and that promotion. I said, listen, I said, I- I'm going to keep it really re- real with you here. I hope my family comes to the game. <laughs> Other than that, I really don't care. I got to worry about what's going on on the field, right? Like, right sure. I got to get the team to the quality where people want to come. Well, now, flash forward ten years, you've done that. Uh, we're really, yeah, we're really lucky. Like, there's there's a great following, and I think people love uh, Ole Miss, and and they, you know, we're we're really fortunate that we're at the fall, right? The fall, everybody wants to be on campus. They want to be campus for for football and 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 the sure. school starting. So. And, and the Friday sport is the, the sport is more popular today in America than it was ten sure. years ago. Absolutely. So we're really lucky because we we do we get great, great crowds. I remember Ross Bjork coming up to me saying, uh, "This is a few years ago, Matt. Your crowds are so good. We're gonna have to we're gonna have to expand the stadium." I said, "That's that's awesome." Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, the idea of having that without fans and and I kind of agree with you. Like, if it's okay, if how can it be okay for our athletes if it's not okay for the fans? Uh, is is the the point that I, I totally agree with you on? Like it, it would be hard for me to to say you know we can we can have this game but no fans. But again, I think that's a way above my pay grade. I will do whatever our administration sure. or the NCAA or whatever tells us to do. If if we want to play, our players want to play. We want to compete. We want to get back to it. So we'll do whatever we have to to do that. But I, I completely understand your point, and quite honestly, I kind of agree with it that it's it's hard to to justify them playing but not letting any fans be out there. Yeah, and before anybody yeah. sends me the hate mail or rattlesnakes in the in boxes. <laughs> I mean, I, if, if that's what if that's what has to be done, okay. Yeah. I mean, I get it. Yeah. I just I think most people that are rational would would agree with me. And I mean, hey, Lane Kiffin said this the other day. He said, "You know, let's let's be real talking about football. You know, it's obviously it's it's a, it's a, a lot more people involved if you look at a, a college football uh, sideline." Um, you know, it's packed. It's yeah. packed with people, and so if it's not safe for the stadiums to be packed, how do we how do we justify that? And that's why I, I'm I'm pretty optimistic today. I'm optimistic games are going to be played. I think I think your team's going to play. I I, mm-hmm. I I do. I think I think I think it's going to happen. I just think this is it's it's leading to this really fascinating conversation because if you're if you're telling, and we keep doing it with with men's football. I mean with football, but and men's basketball. We don't do it with the other sports, but the other sports. Are valid if, if you're if it's a professional league, you know the NBA Players Association. That's a, that's a it's a labor union essentially. The Major League sure. Baseball Players Association they they can they can negotiate at the bargaining table for to have their rights uh, or their opinions represented. Uh, there there is no college. Correct me if I'm wrong. There's no college soccer player union that could negotiate their rights. So it's 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 where that to me that gets kind of problematic. If if we start telling uh, college players, hey, you guys are going to play, but it, no one's going to be allowed to attend. I just I struggle with it. Sure, no, it makes total sense. You know, the good thing for us is we we do have 
some working groups that are, you know, looking at return to play. And so if it backs up, what does that look like? You know, I'm on, right. I'm on the NCAA committee for soccer and we've talked about, you know, right now you have to play 11 games to be eligible to be selected for the NCAA tournament. You know, right now, you know, the NCAA tournament that from the NCAA standpoint, you know, they, they want the NCAA tournament. Uh, they want to keep it at 64 teams. There's no discussion of shrinking the teams or, or any of that stuff. So that's all really, really positive for us of getting the season in, getting the season in in the fall. Uh, all those kind of things are a huge positive. I mean, obviously, we want to play our 20-game slate. We want to start on time and all that stuff. But there is a lot of contingency plans for us if we were to start uh, a little bit later. You know, and maybe we lose a few games but still able to get the season in. So, it's all, uh, it's all, it's all out there for sure, and <laughs> and, and trying to see what we're going to do. But um, it, it's it's like nothing I've I've been a part of. That's for sure. I don't even know the answer to this. I'm genuinely curious. This would be normally as we're taping this on Saturday, May the second. This would be a huge NBA playoff day. There would be uh, Major League Baseball games going on. There'd probably be some golf tournament on on television right now. Mm. I know soccer's your thing. There would be soccer games being played. Yeah. Uh, what's What's life without sports been like for you, the the sports fan? <laughs> Awful. I mean, thank God. For, thank God for the 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 last dance. I mean, that's been with the Jordans been great. But yeah, no, there you would be in the middle of the EPL, the English Premier League finals and, and race and where that is. And, and I'm with you. I'm a huge Yankees fan. So, um, you know, I'd be excited about that. And, uh, you know, I like watching the NBA. Unfortunately, I'm a Knicks fan. So that's a bit of a struggle. Uh, but I do like watching the NBA. I mean, I watch it all, Neil. I mean, it's 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 all, you know, I'm in the back, backyard watching sports nonstop. I'd be huge. Golf fans actually had tickets to the Masters. Which oh, is painful. Sucks. I was taken. Yeah, my father-in-law was on his bucket list. I got tickets, and uh, and so we can't do that. So yeah, it's been miserable. It really has. Um, you know, we 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 li- just live and breathe. I mean, my you know my two sons are huge into it. Um, you know, so so in this the Mott house, it's rough without out sports. So um, so we're trying to manage it. Uh, can't wait to get back and and get going, but. Um, you know, it's, it's no, no baseball this time of year seems so, so strange to me. I know, I know it does you too, but it's so bizarre without being able to see one game yet. Well, and I have this app on my phone and the damn thing, I don't know how to get rid of it, but it keeps telling me like, Hey, the Cubs play the Arizona Diamondbacks tonight at eight Oh five. And I look at it every single day for just a split second. There's like this moment of hope. And I'm like, no, no, it's not real. That's not real. They're not role playing. Uh, uh, so I know you're into Peloton. Uh, yeah. You, are you are you getting? Has this made you a better Pelotoner? You've had more time. Oh my you've God. had more time to Peloton. Yes, yes. I uh, I love the Peloton. You know my my assistant Rob Thompson. He got it. You know he's got bad knees, so he got it um, uh, maybe a year ago and kept on me and on me and on not on me, but he kept. It's great. You know you love it. So we got it. I think in January and it's been fantastic. My wife and I both ride it. We have our uh, the teachers that we like, and um, it, it's been fantastic. I absolutely love it, but it's turned me into really wanting to bike. So I've actually started going, you know, outside and got a got a mountain bike, and uh, and that's been a great exercise. The issue, Neil, is our neighborhood is so dang hilly. I know. So we're just it's brutal. It's brutal trying to ride around the neighborhood. But uh, no, we I just got back from a, rural, a, a ride down the whirlpool uh, trails, which was was great. So, no, it's it's definitely helped that st- side of it for sure. That and cooking. Um, actually, as soon as we hang up, headed to LBs for <laughs> to grab some uh, to grab some ribs. Um, I've spent a lot of time with the big green egg. 
Uh, Chris Malloy and I are going to have a cook-off um uh coming up soon here that we're going to try and record and and put on the, the sports channel but it should be a lot of fun if you need a judge you know where to you, you know where to holler <laughs> you got it perfect <laughs> all right well tell perfect. tell greg at uh, at lb's that i said hello and uh thanks so much for the time and hopefully uh we'll be talking some real uh real live old miss soccer here in the next couple months i appreciate it, neil thanks so much all for right. having me on thanks matt be good yep